Our guest today was born in Madison, Wisconsin, and moved to Alaska before she started term 17. She saw a sprint dog race and fell in love with mushrooms. In 1985, she won the Leonard Seppala Humanitarian Award. She was named Sportswoman of the Year. She appeared in Sports Illustrated and was the first woman to win that did ride. Please welcome to the show, Libby Riddles. Hello, Libby. We are Kaylee, Logan, and Cole. Welcome to the show. Okay, Kaylee, Logan, and Nicole, is that right? No, it's Cole. C-O-L-E. Okay, Kaylee, Logan, and Cole. All right, I'll try to pay attention here. <laughs> Great, thank you. How are you today? Good. Yeah, it's, uh, the sun came up about 11 o'clock over the mountains this morning in Alaska, so nice. warm, warm things up a little bit. With, with this being the 50th anniversary of Iditarod, we're going to start off the show with a little Iditarod trivia. We have five questions for you. Are you ready? Yeah, I guess so. Let's see. We'll see if I am. Who founded the Iditarod? Who founded it? Yes. Yeah, Dorothy Page and Joe Reddington. Correct. Correct. Who is the first ever Iditarod reporter? Uh, well, Dick Whittlemark won the 73 race, and Isaac Oklesic won the 100-mile one that they did the year before that. Yep. It might have technically been the first they did a rod, but yeah. Dick, Dick Wilmer was correct. Yeah, yeah. Um, next one. Who was the first female did a red champion? That would be me. Yep. Correct. Correct. What was the closest finish? The closest finish was uh, Dick Mackey and Rick Swenson by a lead dog's nose back in the 70s. Yep, yep. That would be 1978. There you go. Who was the oldest person to ever finish the Iditarod? Well, it's Norman Vaughn, I think, but we'll see if Jim Lanier catches them. <laughs> Yes, yeah, so it was Norman Vaughn who was 84 when he finished. Yep, I know Norman pretty good, or knew him pretty good. Yep. Yeah, I went on his uh, first serum run expedition in the 90s, and he went by snow machine. He was in his 80s oh, wow. then, and I went by dog team. So it was most of the Iditarod Trail, but we're not racing. We just went like 50 miles a day and then talked at schools and villages on the way to Nome. Cool. Um, yeah, it was neat. You got five out of five on those trivia questions. Oh, I'm pretty hard to stump when I did a rod trivia. So, <laughs> are you guys you guys are into following the sled dogging thing? Do you know any mushers out there? No. Um, we're just starting. It's kind of interesting. Like they just had the the you know the guy that started the race. Uh, one of his granddaughters now is racing, you know, and she just finished this 100-mile race up there. I think she finished it. She entered it anyways, and she's just, like, in high school, you know. But uh, they've got a lot of kids' events, too, and um, 
family mushing kind of stuff. That's cool. Yeah, and that's why you guys, probably the Bear Grease race in Minnesota is one of the most famous long distance races up there. But uh, but I'll tell you what, I know mushers in Los Angeles called the Urban Mushers, and they run rescue dogs with uh, wheel rigs, and uh, there's a musher from Jamaica, and uh, there's just mushers all over the place. Yeah, that's yeah. super awesome. Um, can you talk to us about how you got into mushing? Um, basically, I just kind of was an animal person right from the start. And so I think by the time I was in grade school, I was already scamming on how I was going to have a life with a bunch of animals into it. And I ended up going to Alaska. And, I mean, I really liked horses. And actually, I, I'm a huge fan of cats, right? But I've had cats in Alaska, too. But in Alaska, the sled dogs. Um, were definitely the kind of animal to be having because uh, they're the ones that could help you the most and and uh, fit the best with the weather and the you know the stuff we had to do. So cool. I started out by um, having just three or four or five dogs helping me to get firewood and hauling water for my dog team and myself, and we just worked and got to know each other and. And I started going all over the country with just four or five dogs and then got tucked into running a race and I won my first race because I'd already been doing a lot with mushing, I guess. So then racing seemed like it was fun because I won the first time, you know. Yeah. But I like sports too. Like I did basketball in school and swimming and I downhill ski and I mean, I don't know what kind of stuff like that you guys do, but boy, it's nice just getting outdoors and being lively, I think. Yeah, that's cool. Um, can you start yep. off by telling us a, a bit about yourself? As far as my life, what I'm doing now, or what do you, yeah. what do you want to know? Or back so what I'm, like how I grew up and stuff? Yes. Yeah. Well, I can tell you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I'm from a big family of seven kids, five girls and two boys, and I've got like 19 nieces and nephews and, you know, even a few grandnieces and nephews. Um, uh, my mom's still alive. She's 98 years old, bless oh, her heart. Uh, my dad passed away, but uh, oh, they're both educator type of people and artists. And um, they both did cool things like uh, taught at Navajo reservations when they were young, when my dad was going to school in Arizona. And... Uh, they like to get outside and do stuff too. Like we, my mom's family's from Wisconsin, and there's still a old old log cabin on Lake Michigan where we used to go to the, for summers. It's still in the family, you know. And so they lived in half rural places when they could, you know. Like one place in Wisconsin when I was real small, it was an apple orchard with all different kinds of apples. And oh, that's cool. anyway, I just love the outside. And those days, your parents just said, you kids, get out from underneath my feet. Go outside. Yeah. And you don't care where you went. Go swimming or something and come back when you're tired. Yeah. So it was kind of a neat way to go up. And then we always had animals. So, um, yeah, cats, dogs, birds, fish, that kind of stuff. Oh, cool. cool. So not long after you moved to Alaska, you entered that dinner ride. What a lot of people don't realize is that mushing is an extremely expensive hobby. Some people do this through sponsors, but when you first started, you didn't have sponsors. 
First, can you talk to us about what costs go into racing dogs? Well, it sure is expensive, all right? I mean, heck, it's expensive to just own one dog if you ever have to take it to the vet and if you've seen the price of dog food lately. So, yes, definitely. I mean, but, uh, you know, the things I learned when I was young about how to take care of my dog team, I mean, boy, I, I had to learn, you know? I had to learn how to do stuff, and I had to be creative, you know? Like, dog mushing really makes you use your resources and your mind. So I'm like, okay, I'm young, I'm broke. How do I feed these guys? So you got to hustle more. So sometimes I would get uh, scraps left over from restaurants that people would pay for me. Um, I would go a couple times a week sometimes to the one dairy that was in Alaska and get their outdated dairy products. Um, you know, I'd get, like, people's hunting scraps. Things like that, you know, that would help. Um, I mean, fish, we used to get like fish heads, like boxes that were five foot square. Oh, I mean, huge, cool. huge boxes of frozen fish heads and uh, feed stuff like that to the dogs. And that was pretty cheap, you know. Wow. Uh, today's mushers, um, they're feeding these ultra performance dog foods that are like 80 bucks for a 40 pound bag oh my but God. Wow. they get the job done though they get your dogs can race 100 miles a day on that no problem you know oh, wow. so yeah vet bills equipment you know just and then plus yeah yeah you still have to make a living somehow besides the dogs like you can't just count on that you're going to have prize money and sell dogs and things like that. you got to have some income, too. Yeah. In 1985, you became the first woman to win the Iditarod. What did it feel like for a woman to win a race in a sport that is so heavily dominated by men? Well, I'll tell you what, you know, there's only been like 21 people or so, I think, that have even won the Iditarod ever, let alone men or women. So just to be in that rank... I mean, I still can't even believe it. Uh, I have to pinch myself. And yeah. to be the first woman really wasn't that big of a deal to me, but uh, but I could tell right away that it was a big effect, uh, you know, for other women. And um, like one young lady that worked at a law firm who sponsored me when her business wouldn't sponsor me, she sponsored me herself because she believed that I could do it, you know. And, and to see how proud she was of me after had proved her right, you know, stuff like that was pretty neat. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it's, uh, and then I got a lot of awards and got to travel all over and do all this cool stuff. But, uh, yeah, it's something uh, I, I, I kind of feel like uh, I've been honored to be in that position where I can maybe be a little bit of an influence on what people can do. Yeah. Let me do it. Is the quote that was in the newspaper after you won? Do you do you think you win when you win the race? Winning, winning the race changed the sport. Well, in a way, it did really. I mean, you know, it's something that they, like Joe Reddington, the guy that started the race with Dorothy Page, like he was always trying to figure out ways to promote the Iditarod, and boy, that guy just loved me because. I mean, you couldn't get better publicity than having 
you know, a 130-pound blonde gal go, going and beating all the guys on the Iditarod, you know? I mean, that just yeah. caught the press's attention. Like, they'd had good press before, like BBC and National Geographic and, um, you know, other, you know, kind of things are being televised. But, of course, it was a big story, and, uh, you know, I got fan mail later from all over the world. Really? I mean... Oh, I got letters like, I, and one of the funniest ones is from a, a fan in Australia, some little old lady who uh, just sent it to Libby, I did her out champion, Alaska, and they knew right where to send it to me, and I got that letter up in Nome, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, no, and I've got clippings still, just boxes of clippings from articles people sent me from, yeah, all over. Yep. That's cool. So we read the book at Didron Classics that a lot of things actually went wrong in that race. Your dogs broke away from a tree and ran away. Your sled tipped over. You were struck in the face by a tree limb. There was a bad storm, and the wind tipped over your sled. With all things that went wrong, how were you able to turn it around? That's just life out there, you know. It's, it's, it's the Iditarod and it's life. It's always bad things going to happen. You expect it. It's just... You just hope and pray that you've got the experience and know-how and savvy to deal with what comes up as it comes up. And that's what it's all about, really. And uh, frankly, a lot of what I learned on the Iditarod really does apply to regular life, too. So, yeah, you expect it. What would it be if nothing bad happened? You wouldn't even get your money's worth. Yeah. <laughs> what would you say is different in 2022, 2022 than when you raced in... 1985. Well, right now, COVID is one of the biggest things. Um, yeah. You know, like they did have a race last year, but they couldn't do it complete and they had to stay away from villages and kind of have a quarantine deal. And that's been kind of bizarre, actually. But um, aside from that, you know, of course, a big change is, uh, you know, back in when the race was first going and stuff, we used to stay in people's houses and villages, and they'd have people sign up to take different mushers. And I really enjoyed that because I made, like, lifelong friends, you know, along the way doing that. And uh, But uh, at some point they realized that, uh, for one, the dogs are spread out all over town, so the veterinarians can't keep a good eye on them, and then... You know, some people might get a super nice place to stay, and then somebody doesn't sign up for somebody, and they end up sleeping on the cold floor in an office somewhere or something, and it wasn't really fair. So they changed that and have a corral and rule now. And and then, um, yeah, no, it's just kind of neat for me to watch the young mushers that, uh, you know, uh, from families that I've known and... You know, the guys that are kind of running the thing now are kind of all about 40-something, but, uh, you know, you got some, I mean, we've had some champions that are in their 60s for sure, you know, which is it's just a real interesting sport because everybody, I mean, the more experience you have, the more you can pull out of your hat to some extent, you know, and then how well you know your dogs and how good your dogs are, that's all part of it too. So this is the 50th anniversary of the start of this race. Tell us what you think is the biggest change that that has happened over the last 50 years. I think the dogs themselves have improved so much and the dog care, I think. Um, 
because our knowledge, every time it's run, we get more knowledge on how to do it better, I think, you know, and, and it's just kind of neat to see 50 years accumulation of that and see some of the same families still involved. Um, yeah. There's a lot of things that have changed, but the lifestyle of being a musher is still, you know, very similar to what it used to be back then uh -huh. in some ways. Yeah. So you still uh, race and raise dogs? Uh, do, you, do you? I have some. Oh, go ahead. Um, do you do any races uh, or just still work with the dogs for fun? Yeah, no, I haven't raced for a while. Um, I just decided I raced for 20 years, and that was probably enough. And it's a very extreme kind of lifestyle. And I started doing. 20 years ago, uh, a pretty extreme job lifestyle where I drive a thousand miles down to Southeast Alaska and then give talks on six or seven cruise ships a week in front of five, 600 people and do that for 17 weeks straight and then come back for the winter. So it's not super compatible for me for racing. And I just decided at some point I like keeping the old geezer dogs and having fun and not having all the pressure of racing. So I've been running dogs still, but kind of letting my dogs get old, and I've only got like about a dozen dogs now. Oh. Yeah, we just run around and have fun. So. <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. Yeah. For our listeners, you have written a few books. Can you show those books and what they are about and to, for our listeners? We will put the, the books in the books. No, stop, Ask for you to share. Great. Um, yeah, I wrote my first book, Race Across Alaska. Like, I mean, I've always written, um, I'm just kind of nat a natural writer, I guess, because I read a lot. And then uh, I kept journals um, starting when I was really young, and I still do it. Um, and that actually that helps you writing now. Some stuff that you forget is in those journals, and that's kind of neat. But yeah, so I wrote Race Across Alaska. Um, with Tim Jones, who had written another Iditarod book, and uh, he'd been out as a journalist on the Iditarod Trail, and so we kind of worked together on that book. Uh, Hello, and so I like yeah, I'm going to award for that. And, uh, it's one of the most read books about the race. Uh, so that's for young adults to adults, and then. Um, I did the, kind of a fun one about my cat, Danger the Dogyard Cat, with Shelly Gill and Shannon Cartwright with Paws for Publishing, uh, the company that they owned. And Shelly is one that I did a ride, and Shannon is a pretty epic outdoors person, too. So, because yeah. um, I, I was getting all these uh, fan mail from kids when I won, and so I could see that this was kind of a big deal to school kids and that they wanted to know about my story. And then that was a story. Thank you. Yeah. Um, our final segment of the show is a segment where we bring back from our first season. It's called Rush, uh, Musher Mount Rushmore. If you had to uh, replace four presidents on Mount Rushmore, or yeah, Mount Ru Rushmore with four faces of the Iditarod, who would um, who would they be? You pick any anyone that has anything to do with the Iditarod. Before you start, you should know several of our guests have put you on uh, their Mount Rushmore. Well, that's kind of hard. Boy, I, the two that come to mind right away is George Atla and Joe Reddington. 
um, yeah. seriously. And uh, oh my gosh, so it's so hard because there's so many good mushers on so many, so many levels. Uh, but then do you have to start, maybe you want to think about who's got a good face to go on the mop brush for, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, you know, do you want to have like Scotty Allen from oh, 100 years ago or Leonard Seppala? I mean, Leonard Seppala, okay, Leonard Seppala, he's one of my three. Yeah. Um, okay, and then I don't know, I don't know, maybe the third one, we uh, the fourth one, we've got to leave blank for some up-and-coming musher, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> But those are three of my tops. I mean, Joe Reddington, maybe not as, I mean, of course he was quite the dog man and stuff, but it's kind of more what he's done for the sport, that he's iconic about the Iditarod, I think. And so yeah. it just kind of makes sense. And Seppala is known so well. And yep. I mean, George Atla was, uh, do you guys know about George Atla? Uh, no, we haven't uh, done. Well, he did a different kind of racing. He did the shorter speed racing, but he was a native musher from the bush who'd had polio as a kid. He had one leg that practically didn't work at all, and he went to win 11 of these championships where oh he runs <laughs> He runs 30 miles through the streets of Anchorage at speeds at 20 miles an hour with 18 or 20 dogs through neighborhoods, over bike trails, overpasses, culverts. I mean, it's a heck of a race, and he was so influential in the sport, too, George Atlas. I mean, it's... Look him up, because uh, his, uh, his wife does some um, vet stuff with young veterinary students, um, oh. with, you know, and also that was connected with George. And there's a film about him, too, The Spirit of the Wind. All right. Thank you so much for being on our show today, Libby. Goodbye. Oh. Yeah, you guys are great. Thank you. Special thanks to Libby Rudolph for being on our show today. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review. Also, if you have any questions, comments, or people you would like to hear on our show, please email us at huskytalk1 at gmail.com. If we hear from you or you leave a review, we will read it on the show. Don't forget to follow Iditarod EDU on TikTok. We would also like to give credit to Hobojin for our intro song, the Iditarod Trail song. In our intro, outro song. In the land of the midnight sun, they call this race the Iditarod Trail. To me, it's Reddington's Run. In my heart, it's Reddington's Run. From the city lights of Anchorage to the finish line of Nome. You never find a village that he couldn't call his home. And no matter how hard the going got, he was never afraid to run. Where another man would just give it in, Joe had just begun. Here's to Joe and it's off we go in the land of the midnight sun. Mm, they call this race the Iditarod Trail. To me, it's Reddington's Run. In my heart, it's Reddington's Run. Now a cold wind blows, and everybody knows it'll never be the same. Every musher cried on the night you died, and every husky howled your name. 
Here's to Joe and it's off we go In the land of the midnight sun They call this race the Iditarod Trail To me it's Reddington's Run In my heart it's Reddington's Run Hey, here's to Joe and it's off we go In the land of the midnight sun They call this race the Iditarod Trail To me it's Reddington's Run May it always be Reddington's Run 